Okay, uh, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We're finishing off chapter 9 this morning. Verses 57 to 62, which if you're using the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you should find on page 734. Luke chapter 9, 57 to 62. There's a series of children's history books that my kids like to read. And each title starts with um, the phrase, you wouldn't want to be. The titles uh, are like, you wouldn't want to be a Roman gladiator. You wouldn't want to be a medieval knight. You wouldn't want to be a Shakespearean actor. And, And each book tells all the gross, terrible, unpleasant aspects of that particular period of history in a way that kids love. Um, I love them too. I I think today's scripture passage could fit right in. We might title it, You Wouldn't Want to Be a Christian. As we saw last Sunday morning, Jesus has now set his face for Jerusalem. His disciples have finally realized who he is, that he's God's royal Messiah. and, And he's made it clear to them that he's going to exercise his kingship by suffering and dying in God's holy city. Yet his disciples don't get it. And they don't get that to follow him means that they too must be willing to suffer and die as well for their enemies, for, uh, for the sake of giving up their life in love for others. And so Jesus has begun taking them on a journey to Jerusalem with him to teach them further, to more deeply ingrain into them the lessons and the perspectives and the attitudes that guide his life and must guide theirs if they are going to represent him. This section of Luke's gospel is called the journey section or the way section. As you read through it, you'll see repeatedly uh, phrases like this one we have here in verse 57. As they walked along the road, or literally in the Greek, along the way. We're going to see repeatedly this theme of of walking, of journeying, of, of being on the way with Jesus. And what Jesus is going to teach his followers along this way isn't just for his first disciples. It's for everyone who wants to follow Jesus, everyone who wants to be a Christian. The reason we know that it's for everyone is that in Luke's sequel to his gospel, which is the book of Acts, what are the early Christians repeatedly called? They're called followers of the way. They're the community of people who continue to follow Jesus, living out this way that he's teaching them here in Luke's gospel. Well, right here at the outset of Jesus' way, we learn three reasons that we might not want to be followers of the way, that we might not want to be a Christian. First, we meet someone who is all ready to sign up to be a Christian. He says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, in effect, you have no idea. (laughs) Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Even the animals, Jesus is saying, have made an effort to provide for themselves comfort and safety, but I don't have that luxury. It's not that Jesus never had a home. It's that now that he's headed on this way of the cross, he's left his home behind. He's now at the mercy of whoever will offer him hospitality for the night. And as we saw last Sunday in verse 53, the Samaritans had just refused him that hospitality. 
So now Jesus is warning this would-be Christian, if you're thinking of following me, don't think you can count on a safe, comfortable, middle-class existence. I am living on the road. I'm sleeping on the couches of strangers at night, and some nights I'm sleeping out in the cold. If you follow me, that's all that I can promise you. This whole scenario reminds me of those romantic um, scenes in certain movies that we see. Hero, hero and heroine fall in love, but, but their love is, is frustrated because he is going off to war or he needs to go elsewhere to try to find a job to seek his fortune. And, and so he says to her, you don't want to marry me. I uh, can't take care of you. I, I can't provide for you. I have nothing to offer you but hardship, right? We've all seen those movies. And then depending on how much she loves him or what the specifics of the situation are, she might say, I'll wait for you. I'll, I'll be true until this hard season is over and then you can come back for me and we'll live happily ever after. Or she could say, I don't care about that. I love you so much. I'm coming with you no matter what the hardship. I'll, I'll stay by your side come what may. Right? Well, that's sort of the conversation that's going on here between Jesus and this would-be follower. And we don't know how it turns out, do we? Because as far as Luke is concerned, it's not about the choice that that guy made. It's about what we're going to do. It's about our story to finish. Jesus is letting us know what it will mean to follow him. That he can't promise us a lot, materially speaking. Now, I know that's not what a lot of TV preachers today say. They tell us that our Father in Heaven is fabulously wealthy, that He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, as the Psalms put it. And that God loves His children. He wants them to be blessed materially, like Abraham was blessed. Well, the broader church has, has tested that sort of prosperity theology, and they've called it what it is, heresy. Because, yes, our Father is fabulously wealthy, and He could pour out His riches on us, but when God's own beloved son was on earth, God didn't spoil Jesus with that kind of wealth. Or, or, and Jesus didn't seek it. And, and God doesn't promise it to those of us who follow Jesus. Instead, Jesus says, I've given up a life of prosperity to grasp something greater. I've given up comfort and affluence for myself in order to reach out and be close to those caught in sin and poverty and suffering. I've given up my right to have material blessings in order to pursue a greater mission. To establish the kingdom of God, the new creation on earth, so that one day the whole world will enjoy God's blessings and prosperity. But until that day comes, Jesus says, this mission is going to involve risk. It's going to take sacrifice. If you want to be a Christian, you're going to have to give up a soft life and a safe life and follow my example. So, do you want to follow Jesus? <laughs> Before you say you do, Jesus wants you to realize that signing up with him is like signing up for combat duty of a sort, not for a Caribbean cruise. Notice Jesus makes it clear here that, that he doesn't even promise his followers their own home. Jesus says elsewhere that we can trust his father for our food. After all, God also feeds the birds. 
And we can trust him for our clothes. After all, God clothes the lilies of the field. But as Paul says, perhaps reflecting on this in 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Having your own home, should God provide one, is in Jesus' view a resource to be used for his kingdom and to bless others. It's not a blessing we're entitled to and can count on holding on to. There's the first chapter of you wouldn't want to be a Christian. Are you ready for the second? In verses 59 and 60, Jesus calls this next person to follow him. The first person had volunteered. The second person is recruited by Jesus. Jesus evidently has great love for this second would-be follower or sees great potential in him. And so God, or Jesus calls this person to follow and this guy seems willing to go. He calls Jesus Lord, but he adds, not yet. Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and bury my father. Now, as a kid, I read this and I thought, wow, Jesus won't even let this poor guy have an extra day to attend his father's funeral. But now I realize it's probably, that's not what's going on here. Uh, Because in the Jewish culture of that time, we now know burying your father was a long process. It it began uh, before your father, in some cases, had even died. Let me explain. In Jesus' day, burial itself was a two-step process that took, a year, give or take. The first step was to wrap the body and place the corpse in the tomb. You then leave the corpse there in the tomb for about a year to decompose completely until only the bones were left. You then collected up the bones in the second step of this process and put them in a special box called an ossuary. Uh, and you'd place that ossuary in a slot in the wall of the tomb. And only then was the burial complete and the dead person considered to be resting with their fathers. So when this would-be follower of Jesus says, let me bury my father first, he may need up to a year to complete the process, if his father is even dead yet. Because actually, his father may still be living. Kenneth Bailey, who's an expert in the culture of Jesus' time and who's lived much of his life in the Middle East, comments on how common it is in the Middle East even today to use the phrase, bury my father in relation to living fathers. He comments, I have heard this specific language used again and again among Middle Easterners discussing emigration. At some point in the conversation, someone will ask, are you not going to bury your father first? And the would-be immigrant is usually in his early 30s, and the father being spoken of often has 20 years or so to live. The point is, are you not going to stay until you have fulfilled the traditional duty of taking care of your parents until their death, and then consider immigrating? Bailey explains that the Middle Eastern culture is, is not a culture like modern American culture, where individual freedom is supreme and kids stop obeying their parents somewhere between the age of 13 and 18, right? Um, rather, in the Middle East, age is revered and children are expected to honor, respect, and even obey their parents until their parents are dead. 
Bailey explains how young professionals in the Middle East, even today, may have a job opportunity or a career move before them in the city, but before they accept it, they will travel to their ancestral village to consult their aged father and to ask for his blessing. In that culture, to do otherwise would be to dishonor their father. And, of course, for God's people, honoring your father wasn't just a good idea or a societal expectation. It was one of the Ten Commandments. Honor thy father and mother. Now, particularly in that culture, the responsibility to bury the father fell to the firstborn son. And so we're safe to assume that this would-be disciple in our verses here is probably a firstborn son. Firstborns tend to be the responsible ones, right? In that culture, to shrink um, or to shirk this family responsibility to bury the father would be shameful and irresponsible and for a firstborn Jew living by the Ten Commandments, even godless and immoral. And so what this son is asking of Jesus is really a chance to remain responsible and respectable and religious in his own eyes and in the eyes of everyone around him. Lord, I will follow you, but first let me bury my father. And this guy and every other good Jew listening expects Jesus to give the obvious response. Of course, as a good godly son, you must bury your father first. But instead, Jesus says something utterly shocking. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You can just imagine the surprised looks and questions buzzing around the crowd when they hear this. Jesus, who do you think you are? You, you're only a young 30-something man yourself. How can you think of yourself as more important than this young man's God-bound responsibility to honor his aged father? And what do you mean, let the dead bury their own dead? Well, to tackle the second question first, Jesus seems to mean let the spiritually dead worry about burying those who are physically dead. So what is Jesus claiming here? Well, he's claiming that he can offer spiritual life. A life of such great potency and quality that compared to it, regular life is like being dead. Well, this raises the first question. Who does Jesus think he is that those who won't follow him are as good as dead? And who does Jesus think he is to place himself above, above someone's parents whom God has commanded that we honor? Well, the apostle Peter answered this question in uh, a similar situation. When Jesus' demands were getting hard and, and a lot of would-be Christians were, were deciding not to follow Jesus after all. And at that point, in John chapter 6, Jesus had turned to his inner circle of 12 apostles and he said, do you want to leave too? And what was Peter's reply? Lord, to whom, else, to whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's who Jesus is. That's why he has come, to bring life, fullness of life, everlasting life. Life of greater worth than having a place to call home. Life of such value and importance that it's worth giving up your reputation and being irresponsible for. And Jesus has come to share this life with as many as who will follow him. And so he calls 
so all that he calls to himself to follow him, he also sends out to invite others. You go, he tells this man, and proclaim the kingdom of God. Go tell others about this new life that I'm inviting you to have. And again, Luke doesn't tell us how this guy responds. Because the response is really ours to make, yours and mine. But what does the choice look like for us? I mean, our culture doesn't expect us to run every decision by our aged parents. We no longer understand honor your father and mother to mean having anything to do with burying our parents' bones. Well, what do you feel responsible for that you've got to fulfill in order to be respectable in your own eyes and in the eyes of others? What responsibilities do you have that if you didn't fulfill them, the people around you, maybe your parents, maybe even the church people, would look down on you and and shake their heads and saying, you are being so irresponsible. Are you willing to endure that shame, that disapproval for Jesus? Let me give you a a small example from my own life. Um, I'm a firstborn. I feel a strong sense of duty to be responsible. And um, if I'm not careful, that can be my identity. Um, I can feel good about myself when I'm responsible. I can look down on others who aren't as responsible as I am and should be. Um, One time when I was living in Washington, D.C., I was helping to start a new church. And um, while it was still small, it was just a weeknight Bible study, I was attending another established church on Sunday mornings because that's what those of us involved in the church plant were encouraged to do. The large church I I picked to attend turned out to be a poor choice. It was far away. Uh, It wasn't a good fit for me. It was pulling my life in too many directions, and I was coming apart. And and so it had become a burden and an obligation and a stress. Uh, And I was sharing this with a friend, but I concluded, but I'm going to stick it out because I'm a faithful person. I'm not a quitter. Um, And and she was like, whoa, wait a minute. (laughs) did you promise this church that you'd attend it? I said, no. Are are they counting on you, this big church in the suburbs? Uh, No. Well, she said, you're committed to this church plant because you feel God has called you there, but maybe you're manufacturing this other obligation. Maybe God doesn't care if you keep going to this other church or not. And she was right. My sense of responsibility wasn't about God. It was about my identity and pride and being responsible. And not wanting others to view me as a quitter or, you know, one of those fickle church hoppers. Um, Well, that's what this would-be Christian in in verse 59 is wrestling with only in a much bigger way, much bigger situation. Is he going to be a good, responsible son? Or is he going to give up that identity and that reputation and follow Jesus risking the shame and the disapproval of his parents and his relatives and everyone else who are going to label him as an untrustworthy, negligent, foolish young man. And if you're from an Asian culture, you know exactly what's going on here. Um, Let me put this another way. This man has to choose between following Jesus and being religious. You know, we can use religion to bargain with Jesus. Jesus, I'm not willing to follow you unconditionally. But I'll tell you what, I'll honor my parents really well instead. Or I'll attend church regularly instead. Or I'll volunteer at the shelter or or whatever. 
And Jesus here is saying, no, I'm asking you to give me all of you. No other responsibility is higher than following me. I alone can offer you life. And I want to teach you and send you to share that life with others as well. There's the second chapter, and you wouldn't want to be a Christian. Let's look at the third, verses 61 to 62. This third person, like the first, freely volunteers to follow Jesus. The first two were men. This one we don't know. We'll refer to her as a she. Um, before she follows, she asks to go back and say goodbye to her family. Now, this seems harmless enough, but again, Kenneth Bailey explains that it looks different when you understand the culture in which this took place. In the Middle East, even today, someone who is leaving never simply says goodbye to those who are staying. Rather, the one leaving always asks permission to leave, saying something like, with your permission, I go now. It's then up to those who are staying to respond with, may you go in safety, or may God go with you, or, no, you must not go, I insist that you stay with us. Bailey points out that the old Syriac translations of Luke, which were much closer to the culture of Jesus' day, translate verse 61 in this way. Let me first explain my case to those in my house. Bailey continues, the early Syriac translators knew perfectly well that this volunteer was not going to go home and plant one last fond kiss on her father's cheek and hear her mother's parting words of encouragement. Rather, she was asking Jesus' permission to submit the question of her following Jesus to their authority. And Jesus denies her condition to following him. He counters, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, most of us have probably never tried to plow a field with an old wooden plow and a pair of oxen, cutting the soil furrow by furrow back and forth. But evidently, um, carving the soil takes as much concentration and precision as carving a Thanksgiving turkey in nice, thin slices. You've got to really pay attention to what you're doing or you'll mess it up. You've got to keep looking ahead, staying online. Otherwise, you're going to zigzag. You're going to make a mess of the whole thing. And as slow as oxen move and as slow as they turn, it's going to be a trouble to get it sorted out. So Jesus is pointing out that if his followers' focus is going to be divided between serving in God's kingdom on the one hand and what her family or friends are telling her on the other, it's going, to be a it's going to mess up her work for God, her service in God's kingdom. I've seen this happen. Um, a pastor senses that his time at a church is done. He's either out of energy or ideas or vision or he's lost the respect of the congregation. Or, or the church has changed and he's no longer got the right gifts or experience to lead it further. And so he knows, he senses that he should step aside and make room for new leadership. In fact, if he doesn't, he knows momentum is going to die and conflict is bound to happen in the church. But his kids don't want to move. And his wife pictured that they would retire there. And so he stays. And, and things do indeed get worse at the church. And, and the work of God suffers for years to come. That's what happens when we 
are not looking ahead at what's best for the kingdom, but we're looking back at other priorities and allegiances. And it's not just true for pastors. It's true for each one of us. Uh, Because like it or not, Christians represent Jesus in the world by the life that we live. And we may be the only Jesus that people ever see. Brendan Manning put it famously. He said, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him with their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. That's how we can mess up God's kingdom when we put our hand to the plow, but then we look back. Trying to balance competing commitments and alliances and priorities, it'll never work, Jesus says. I'm headed for a cross, remember? (laughs) And I've told you to take up your crosses too. Don't become a Christian if you're going to mess up my work because your other allegiances are going to distract you, cause you to compromise. And so there's the third chapter and you wouldn't want to be a Christian. Well, it's one thing to say you wouldn't want to be a Christian back then. What about us today? Do you want to be a Christian? We don't have the choice to literally leave everything behind and follow Jesus on his way to Jerusalem like they did back then. But we still do have a choice. Are we going to live each day of our lives, decision by decision, the way we think best? Or are we committed to Jesus' way, to Jesus' direction and priority, to Jesus' teaching and mission, so that we, or so that they, have first an unquestioned place in our lives? There are a lot of appealing things about Jesus. He's so loving and welcoming. He's willing to forgive anything that you've done. He offers healing and and comfort and consolation. He gives life great meaning and purpose. He offers life, a life of peace and fulfillment and joy and love and, and intimacy with God that you can't find anywhere else and that will never end. But in today's passage, Jesus makes it clear that he won't let us just take what we want and then leave the rest. We have to follow Jesus on his terms or else he doesn't really recognize us as one of his followers at all. But what about grace, right? The Bible says we're saved by grace. Of course, no one is worthy to come to Jesus, but we're freely welcomed by his grace. So how can Jesus turn around and be so demanding here? Well, the truth is that What Jesus is saying in our text today isn't in conflict with grace. Because Jesus is not saying here that we've got to earn our place as his follower. Jesus isn't requiring us here to to come with our hands full, offering him all of the good works that we've done. And, And then maybe he'll let us be his followers if they're good enough. No, it's just the opposite. Jesus is inviting everyone to come who will come with empty hands empty hands. He's calling us um, let go of what we've done for God. To, To stop holding on to what people expect of us and how they see us. To to shed ourselves of the pressures and expectations we put on ourselves to be responsible or even religious. 
and to drop our insistence and our anxiety about maintaining a comfortable life. In other words, Jesus is trying to free us up so that he can give us life. Well, maybe we can't perfectly let go of everything yet. I'm pretty sure that doesn't disqualify us because look at his first disciples and how they messed up along the way. But we do need to realize what we're signing up for. Jesus is headed for a cross. And he's gathering followers who will spend their lives in love for his mission to redeem and to restore this dark and broken world. And if that's not what we want, if that's not the path we're committed to pursuing and growing in, if that's not the kind of grace that we are looking for, then we don't want Jesus. It's probably a good time to find another religion or no religion at all. But for those of us who, like Peter, have nowhere else to go and who are convinced that Jesus alone has the words of eternal life, then we can expect from Jesus what my dad offered my mom when he asked her to marry him. He said something like this in effect. I can't promise you a wealthy life or a comfortable life, but I can promise you a life of adventure and purpose, (laughs) a life of commitment and love, A life that will never be boring. And Jesus could add, a life that will never end. So, do you want to follow Jesus? Let's pray. As we pray, um, I want to invite you um, to think about what it is that Jesus might be asking you to let go of that are in your hands, which are keeping you from embracing the fullness of the life that he has for you. What is it that he's, you know that you need to let go of in order to follow him? What is it that um, maybe you need to stop doing? Something you need to shed? Or what is it that maybe you know he's calling you to start doing, to embrace? As you, um, as you think about that, um, or, or maybe it's the bigger question of the question that you've been wrestling with of whether you're going to follow Jesus. Whether you're going to say, Jesus, I'm all in. Or whether you're going to say, well, truth be told, Jesus, on your terms, I'm going to have to beg out. Ultimately, that's the decision Jesus is confronting us with. For some of us, Maybe we're new to Jesus and he's going to give us time to figure that out. But for others of us, we may know that that we've had the time and we need to make a decision. Jesus says we wrestle with, as humans, with this call, which for many of us is is scary because we think we've got to hold it together. We we care about what people think. Um, We get anxious and concerned about, about many things and yet, You're inviting us to trust you completely. And you're not promising us an easy, cushy life. You went to the cross. You you know what it takes to redeem the world. You know what it takes to bring your kingdom, to come alongside the poor, the sinful, the oppressed, the needy. You know we might get uh, 
caught in the crossfire. And yet you offer us life, you offer us purpose, you offer to make us a part of your mission for this world. So I pray that, Jesus, you would work on our hearts, you would open our eyes to you, and you would help us to make an honest choice to know where we stand. Amen.